Today's reading is from Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all their generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Abby. <clears throat> All right. Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name's Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor and teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. If you are new, some of you'll hear me say a lot. Um, I feel like I say this, I could say this, most of you can probably even say it in your sleep, but we are one church with nine different congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona, seven of which are here in the valley. Each one of those congregations is elder-led and lead pastor-led. So I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Peoria. Aaron Daly's the lead pastor with Wayne Winter. They're actually co-lead pastors there. Uh, Alhambra, um, Luke Simmons is at Gateway, but all of those congregations are elder-led. So I'm one of five elders here at Redemption Peoria. And honestly, I'd love to help you navigate any questions that you might have. Uh, I, I will say this, if you're new, it really is kind of a perfect time to come uh, into kind of joining. Statistics would even show, the church analytics for whatever that's worth is, you know, usually people start coming to church or trying to navigate a new church, usually in the months of August and September the most, and then January and February. And that made me think about what we're doing, because if you are new, uh, this morning we're starting a new book, and we feel like the best way to understand the Bible is going through books in the Bible. So verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're starting Exodus, and I was just thinking just, Last night, I was processing just kind of the season that we're going into as a church, but also just as individuals, uh, you know, uh, school starting up. Tonight, our youth group starts up. If you have any questions about that, you can see Josh Miller. Uh, he's going to be out by the Connect desk. But just in general, our life is kind of going, and the story of the Exodus uh, kind of lends its hand towards that. Um, it's, I mean, it's a gigantic book if you don't know what it is. And it goes through, you guys, we're going to, at the end of this, we're going to know how to make the tabernacle, where bronze goes. It's going to be awesome, right? Uh, but there's so many cool things. But the major thrust of the story is a people who are saved out of slavery. And I was just thinking about that just, again, as a, a group of people for us as a church, but also as individuals, it honestly might be a time for you to go, Honestly, I'm navigating like relationally. I just kind of need to hit the restart button or I've been thinking through exercise. I don't want to wait till January to get my gym membership or whatever it is. It just feels like the story of Exodus lends its hand seasonally for whatever that's worth. It feels like a cool time to start the, the, the book of Exodus. So I wanted to start with just kind of sharing that. Um, so let me share a little bit about um, the bigness of Exodus. I want to pray for us and we're going to go through the first chapter, the entire first chapter. But there's a bunch of things that I need to say before we do that. So every single time we go through a book in the Bible, it feels, at least from my perspective, I'm trying to like hype that book up, like just go hard. Like when we, Philippians is you know, it's so amazing, it's so awesome. Ephesians, it's so awesome. When we did Judges, it's awesome. And Mark, it's awesome. Titus, it's awesome. You guys, Exodus really is awesome. Um, and it's not just like, 
the feel of the book and the narrative of the book, but by all accounts, this is what is known as the Jewish gospel. And, and, and the Exodus has shaped your culture, whether you're, you're a believer here or not. I mean, most movies, so if you've never heard of uh, Joseph Campbell, he has something called The Hero's Journey, which pulls itself from the story of Moses. Uh, we have movies that have explicitly been made about the book of Exodus, and then even just a lot of films on the side have the elements of the Exodus, iRobot, Elysium, which ultimately all these things end up pointing towards Jesus. But let me give you a case in point, a movie that just recently came out and is, was a remake of a, of a movie before, okay? So if I was to tell you a story of a character who, because of fear of being accused of murder, flees. And when he flees, he finds himself with a people that are not his people, and he gets comfortable there, until eventually, in a crazy kind of cosmic spiritual way, his father comes to him, reminds him of who he is, and tells him to go back to his people to set them free, for, for, uh, 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 to rescue them. I just, one and the same, described Moses and Simba, both at the same time, okay? And I'm telling you, like you're laughing, but it's all over, so many movies. There's a guy named Troy Kinney in our congregation. I bet he can give you 20 other movies that are just like that, have their ties to the story of the Exodus, because it's, it's a great story. Uh, and honestly, it's, it's at the core of what we know of, of even Western society. You don't have arguments about the Ten Commandments being at court buildings without the story of the Exodus. Let me read something to you from a book called Echoes of Exodus. It's one of the commentaries I'll be using for the Exodus series. It's by uh, Alistair J. Roberts. He says this, the Exodus is central to the scripture, central to the gospel, and central to the Christian life. Whatever book of the Bible you are reading, and whatever Christian practices you are involved in, echoes of the Exodus are in there somewhere. So you've got to understand, the way that we look back on the cross and say that, look at, see how God saved us, is the way that the Jewish people look back on the Exodus, and so for us to go through it, it gives us a, a, a ton of ways to understand the atonement. It gives us a way to understand what Christ did on the cross. It gives us ways to understand uh, the law. So when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, all these are coming together in the book of Exodus. So just kind of be mindful of that as we go through it. It's, it's going to be really exciting. Now, with that being said, there's a few caveats that uh, I need you to understand that maybe you're not even aware of. Some of you might not even be aware of um, in the way that we could understand the book of Exodus and the way we could, don't want to understand the book of Exodus. And so just some theological convictions for me and from Redemption Church. The first one is this. Um, we have a very strong theological conviction that everything that takes place in the book of Exodus actually took place. Now you may go, well, duh, but no, there's a strong push within uh, liberal Christianity that would say a lot of the things that take place, uh, place and you may have even heard this before, um, are kind of like hyperbole. Like God, it's not that he really parted the Red Sea. I mean, how could he drown all those people? It was like a, a spiritual parting of the way that the Egypt is in their way, blah, blah, blah. We don't, that's not. We believe there was a sea, there is a sea, there was water, it was parted and people drowned in it. We believe there were actual babies who died. We believe that God spent the spirit of death at some point. I mean, we're going to get really intense things. All these plagues, we believe they actually happened, okay? That's real. So conviction number one. Conviction number two, and I, I'm just throwing this out here, just a personal thing that I want to be careful as we navigate. Um, though there are moments, and there are many of them, that we can tie um, our, how do I say this, national experience to the book of Exodus, I want to be careful we don't tie it in the wrong ways. So there's a big thing, even it was brought up by the liturgist, and it's been tied before to, uh, um, to some kind of left-leaning left theology, where you have America 
is Egypt, Trump is Pharaoh, and the Israelites are the undocumented. Now, I want to say this. As we go through this, I'm not saying there are parallels. Many of you who have been going to Redemption Pure for a while know how much we are fighting for the undocumented. My, my, my fear is, though, we don't um, take it out of context and do some really exegetical gymnastics to get there to make a point. And so um, we're dealing with a completely different government system. I, quite literally, not just Israel is a theocracy, but Egypt is a theocracy. The people of Egypt believe that Pharaoh is God. And so there may be people on the right who believe Trump is God, but they would never outright say it. These people are literally worshiping Pharaoh. I guess some people are worshiping Trump. But the point is the same, that it's just different. And all the dots can't connect exactly the same. So I want to be careful with that. With that said, though, here's what I do want to say. Um, I don't want to miss the opportunities when they do come along. Because what today does is it makes the Republican in the room recognize that the people of God are the undocumented. They're, they are, in some ways, we can kind of see it go, okay, yeah, Israel, I could see I could see that. But again, tying it in all the wrong ways. You could push and go, okay, I could see that. There is something to wrestle with. But at the same time, those strong Democrats in the room, you've got to wrestle with abortion here. That, that Egypt is the one calling for all the deaths of babies. So though I don't want to go apples to apples, I, I do want to draw lessons when they come along. And so... We're going to try to do that really wisely. Um, there are things that can connect, and I'll do my best to connect them when we come across them, but I'll also make sure we make some parallels uh, as to how they're not quite the same. So let me pray for us, and then I'll give us some, uh, um, some instructions of what we're going to do, and we're just going to start with Exodus 1.1. So, Father, thanks just for who you are. Thanks for the book of Exodus. Um, there is a strong, uh, I guess, trail within our society that Exodus holds, and so uh, we pray that we'd be wise to know this story well, um, I pray over the next geez, three months that you would smile upon uh, us going through it and that uh, we'd find favor uh, as your people as we read your word. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's how we normally go through it. We go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We will do that for the most part in Exodus, but here's how it works when we get to narrative theology as big as it is if you're new. We did this in Judges. I'm going to go through every verse in chapter one. We're covering all of chapter one today. I'll go through every single verse and I'll pull out some things that you can know, theological nuances, cool words that you can appear and all that stuff. And then what we're going to do is we're going to zoom out and we're going to look at the whole forest. Like we looked at each individual tree, we look at the whole forest and go, okay, well, what are we supposed to do with chapter one? Why does God have Exodus chapter one? Okay, so that's what we'll do. Here we go. The book of Exodus. Here we go. These are the names. Yes, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zubalun, and Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Let's stop there real quick. So um, the first thing that I want you to know that you can't see in your English translations is the first word in the book of Exodus is the word and. Okay? And you can't see it there, and that's unfortunate because it's doing something. So one of the other commentaries that I'll be using, uh, relying heavy on, probably uh, most heavily on, is a guy named Victor P. Hamilton. This is what he says. The first word in Exodus is and, indicating that, the, uh, that Exodus, rather than being a distinct book, is simply the continuation of the narrative that Genesis has begun. This conjunction links the story of Exodus with Genesis, 
one taking up where the other leaves off. It actually, we actually do this in uh, Leviticus and Numbers as well. First five books are this ongoing story. Let me show you something to kind of prove why this is important. So there's, these are two different verses that I'm going to show you. One is Exodus 1-1 that we just read, and the other is in Genesis 46, uh, chapter 46, verse 8. Now, this is not a copy and paste, and it's not an accident. These verses are the exact same thing. And Genesis chapter 46 is, is a winding down of this story. It's at the end of Genesis. And Exodus 1, when we read that language, is meant to uh, pick that story back up. That's what we're supposed to do here. So when it starts with and, we're to see this connection with the book of Genesis. And this is why uh, the next verses are really important. It says this. So verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The reason the story is important before we can get to how the multiplying took place and the land is filled in Egypt, there's a guy mentioned twice in there and, and you might miss it. Joseph was already in Egypt, verse six, then Joseph died. So um, I think like three weeks ago or a month ago, the new Top Gun trailer just came out. If you guys saw this. Okay, well, I'm excited about it. And it came out, and I was sitting with Titus when the, the top, do you guys, please tell me as a congregation, we know what Top Gun is. Okay, thank you, thank you. Because I'd be like, well, I resign, I guess. I don't, okay. Um, so we're, I watch it with Titus, and uh, I'm like getting all jack, like, let's go. And Titus is like, I don't, I don't see it, right? I don't see it. Now, here's the thing. I tried to watch Top Gun uh, with Titus earlier before, like a year ago, but you forget, you forget how much the eighties and nineties got away with some of the movies. We watched these and now you watch them with your kids and you're going, yeah, I can't watch that with you. You didn't realize. And so that was top gun for me. So he hasn't seen top gun and he probably won't tell he's 30, but he hasn't seen it yet. And so I'm watching the trailer getting all jacked up because I know before top gun. Okay. He's just seeing like preview top gun has no idea why he should be excited. And this is what we could, we could read the first couple verses in Exodus and go, yeah, Joseph died. Who's Joseph? Who's Goose? We don't know who he is, right? Okay. And so when, when we, when we read this story, when we go about reading this story, it's important for us to understand the background. And so though the story in Genesis, even before Genesis 46, though it starts uh, with a guy named Abraham, our, our story real quick, uh, I'm going to walk us through, starts with, starts with a, a 17 year old man named Joseph. He's a son of many sons of a guy named Jacob. Jacob has all of these sons, and uh, one of her, his younger sons is Joseph, and he likes Joseph the most, which means his other brothers don't like Joseph. And so what happens is his other brothers sell Joseph into slavery, right? And there's this encounter with his Midianite people, which will be important later on for the, the book of Exodus. But as he goes into slavery, he ends up working for this guy named Potiphar because God continues to give Joseph these promotions, right? So his whole family, his brother, sell him to slavery, tell, tell their, dad, their dad, Jacob, he's dead. His whole family thinks he's dead. He's gone, okay? Well, all the while, he's over here working for Potiphar, this high ruler. Uh, Potiphar's wife really likes Joseph. And so Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph. Joseph refuses and flees, and she doesn't know what to do. So she, of course, accuses him of coming on to her. This makes Potiphar very angry. Potiphar finds Joseph and throws him into prison. He's now in prison and through some crazy encounters of interpreting dreams, Joseph works his way up from a a, a prisoner, works his way up to the second in command in Egypt, right under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh at one point in the story says, whatever Joseph tells you to do, do it. 
And so Joseph now, um, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, he, uh, he, he's shown by God that there's going to be this great famine, right? Uh, before this, there's going to be this great plenty. So Joseph says, we need to build storehouses and we need to put all the grain and food. We need to put food in these storehouses. What this does for Egypt is it makes Egypt a powerhouse because now there's famine in all of the land and people from all over are coming to Egypt to buy food. They're selling everything that they can because this Joseph made Egypt a big deal okay so what happens is through the course of this whole interaction joseph's family who thought he was dead has to come to egypt to get grain when they do joseph eventually reveals himself which is a very emotional ride if you want to read at the end of genesis very emotional ride of what happens with joseph he reveals himself to his brothers and then eventually to his dad and says listen i'm in charge here i know where all the food is i'll take care of us he forgives them he actually makes this declaration you meant to say it, send me into slavery you meant it for evil but this whole thing god was orchestrating he meant it for good and so eventually all of the family all of jacob's family comes to egypt now What you may not understand is Jacob, uh, Joseph's dad, he has his name name changed to Israel. And so now Jacob's family, who's in Egypt, what do you call, it's not Jacob's family, it's Israel's family. So what do you call a big group who are under Israel's family? You call them the Israelites. And so now Israel, all of the Israelites are in Egypt. And what we were just told in the story is Joseph, who's the guy who got them all there, he dies. And so let me read it again so you kind of have a background. But the people of Israel, that family continues to grow. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were faithful or uh, fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So I, I need you to hear in all this, even in Genesis 14, this is part of God's plan. God actually tells Abraham that he's going to do this, send you to a foreign land, and then there's going to be a course of 400 years where you're going to be uh, um, taken advantage of there. So we have this, it's in uh, Genesis 15, I apologize. So let's go on with our story so you kind of have a little bit more of a background. Verse 8 says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So there rises to power this new pharaoh. It's not like the old pharaoh and then just immediately a new pharaoh. There are generations here. This is between three and 400 years uh, period of time. And so now there arises, arises this new pharaoh. And it's important that you hear the word who didn't know Joseph because there's a few ways that we can understand this in Hebrew. One is he just has no idea who Joseph was. It's been so long. It'd be like us kind of uh, roughly about the same time, like George, I don't know who George Washington is. I have no idea who that is, right? But I don't think that's the, the indicator. Um, there's another side that he knows who he, he was, but he just kind of forgot, kind of like folklore, just back him. But there's a third defining, which uh, I, I would probably lean towards, which is a little more belligerent towards. It's, um, it's a knowing of, but choosing not to recognize uh, the benefits. We, we see this a lot, actually, if we could be honest, and this is just in my short life, I've seen this with presidents. It feels like tr- to Trump, everything that Obama did was just like hell in a handbasket, like he could, he was a demon in flesh, right? And then Obama, everything before him, he like saved the day from Bush. And then Bush, of course, saved the day because Clinton did all these things. It just feels like, and now those of you old in the room, that might've been like the continuation. I just feel like the last four or five presidents, it's been like that. Now imagine that, but far worse. Pharaoh's going, yeah, yeah, Joseph, but like, I don't care. Like who, like now look, all of Joseph's people, they're taking over the land. We're not okay with this. So we need to deal with what Joseph did. Okay, that's kind of the, the idea of what we see here. 
did not know Joseph. Verse 9. And he said to his people, because all the people are growing, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. I need you to hear the tone of these few verses here. Pharaoh now, in response to this people group growing, um, has this immense fear. There's a tone of fear. Pharaoh is afraid of losing power. He's afraid of losing uh, maybe geographical conquest. He's afraid. And this is where usually you see some of the ties in the same way that um, as Americans, uh, you can be afraid of a a certain people group growing, right? Maybe jobs lost or whatever it is. This is usually where you see that tie. I want to stick to the story here and say this, that Pharaoh clearly seems to have some elements of xenophobia, and he's afraid of this certain race or ethnicity growing at the rate that it is because uh, they might turn against him or take over or whatever it is. And so that's what we see here. Do with it what you want. Verse 11. Therefore, in response to this, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh storehouses, store cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, I want you to see that word afflict there in verse 11. It's actually used twice in Genesis and both times when it's used, it's used for the word rape. Um, what's happening here is it's the idea. It's not just like, oh yeah, he's making us work 60 hours a week. No, through whips and force, wake up. If you don't, we will kill you. Labor, uh, he puts all of these Israelite people to work. And I think there is a little bit of shot of irony because there, you see that those two words there, the, uh, they built for Pharaoh store cities. Um, you'll hear more as the story goes on. There's actually a lot of geographical historical proof to a lot of these things, but there's some irony there. One is Joseph at one point that, that Pharaoh forgot that Joseph guy, he actually built storehouses and filled them for Egypt at one point was a little bit of irony there. Number two, what's interesting in Hebrew, there's only one letter different from tabernacle to storehouses, which means the book of Exodus starts with, um, through forced labor, the people of God building storehouses or store cities for Egypt and will end with building a tabernacle to fill it with the things of God. And so there's a lot of bob and weave of what God is doing here, which is Kind of cool. I love that stuff anyway. Um, So verse 12, it says this, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Verse 14, and made their lives bitter and uh, with hard service in mortar and bricks and all kinds of work in the field. In their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You can see this through dread. This is what they're doing. So it's not responding. Uh, we need to work them hard. And so they're obviously going to comfort. Uh, they're, looking, they're making love for comfort. Uh, and so like, cool, well, we have to work all day. At least we go home and uh, uh, make babies with our spouse. And so they multiply all the more. It is, like Pharaoh's not happy with what's, what's going on. So he ruthlessly doubles down on the pain and makes it even more difficult, right? Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephira and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them, on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So uh, Pharaoh kind of responds with, they're multiplying, give them hard work. That didn't work. So fine, go like even further, even though they're multiplying, make it even more difficult. That's not working. So Pharaoh goes, let's go to the slave midwives. And when they are helping these women in birth, when they're helping their, them in birth, let's kill all the male children. Now, this is a point we need to stop because what Pharaoh is doing is very strategic here. Okay. Let me read a quote to you from a guy named uh, Greenberg, who wrote a commentary on this idea in 2002. I want you to listen, then I'm going to explain the commentary. The condemnation of male infants seems either self-defeating or inadequate. 
If Pharaoh wanted to exploit Israel, Israel's manpower, the decree was self-defeating, right? Kills all the boys. But if he wanted to simply reduce the Israelite population, he should have condemned the females, or at least included the females. Pharaoh's intention is to get rid of the boys so that eventually he can have all the girls for himself and his people. Here's what Pharaoh is doing. It's the very thing that God does not want in the book of Judges for his people to happen with the Canaanites. It is um, God over and over says, listen, any people group can be part of what I'm doing. They submit to the laws of Israel. They submit to me as their God. I don't want a blending of faith. I don't want these blendings of faith because what happens is the prophets of Baal will start to teach you and then you're going to go astray. I don't want that. I'm not okay with that. I am holy. And so uh, you see this in the book of Judges. The people start to follow after the Canaanite gods as they're in Canaan. And God says, no, that's not what we want. What Pharaoh is doing by killing the males only is slowly, this is called assimilation or, or acculturation. It's the idea that you slowly kill off this people group by impregnating them with your people. And so now the Israelites and the Egyptians, they come together. Now they're half Israel, half Egyptian. Well, then eventually that happens, and now they're a quarter, right? And eventually, slowly but surely, as generations go on, Pharaoh is strategically getting rid of the people of Israel. And it's not just ethnicity-wise here that God is against it. I mean, we've heard that argument before, and it's ridiculous. God is against the intermingling of faiths. For Egypt, Pharaoh is their God, and God does not want that, right? But Pharaoh does. Pharaoh does. And so... Uh, we have a response uh, to what we hear. But, so he says, kill all the, the male children. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I want, want you to see, because there's been the, a threat of fear. I want you to notice something that's really amazing here. Um, first, the threat of fear finds its way through the whole chapter so far. But the first time, for the first time, we're going to see Pharaoh has this fear of man, has this fear of people, this, this man-made fear. And now we are introduced to these midwives who have this fear of God. And here's why I think this is amazing. They have this fear of God, and I'll, I'll just, I'll read this to you. Um, well, actually, let me come back to that. Let me just say something on this, this element here. Um, because through the course of this chapter, we've heard a few names, hard names that we, can't, we haven't been able to pronounce, but two names for sure are slave midwives. On the bottom of the food chain, it would be slave midwives, these two midwives. At the top of the food chain, it would be Pharaoh. And yet God in his like, almost like bob and weave way says, let me tell you the name of the midwives. We don't even know who Pharaoh is. And he's arguably the most powerful man in the world. So God is saying something here, and I would just say side tangent, parents in the room who have daughters, fight to make those daughters fear the Lord and make them bold, make them brave to stand up to the Pharaohs of this world. So side tangent, Eve and Anna are on their way, okay? (laughs) Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. Uh, Pharaoh almost turns what they've done, saving these children's lives, uh, like this, like a sin statement. Like, why have you done this? This is a bad thing. I will say this, um, what they're doing in the ruse, it's hard to tell. Uh, the midwives are doing either something derogatory towards the Israelite women or something that lifts them up. Uh, it would be like this, like going, well, you know, like 
Caucasians. White people, they just multiply like rabbits. They're just always multiplying. Women just give birth over and over and over again. That's a derogatory way to talk about a race and giving. But, or you could say over here, well, you, honestly, if you like, think about it, Asian women, more so than African-American women, more so than Latino, more than, so than Caucasian, they're like really strong when it comes to giving birth. And so they give birth really quickly. Can you hear the tone of that? One is a derogatory way to speak of a race. The other is an uplifting way to speak of the race. I don't know which way. It was hard to tell uh, in the, the language here. And the commentaries weren't, it weren't very helpful. But either way, what's going on is the Israelite women, these midwives, are using um, this half lie, if we can be honest, to have kind of our first interaction of civil disobedience. They're saying, it's not okay to kill these children. And honestly, this ruse is part of using the Israelite women either by denigrating them, saying, well, they're just, you know, they're like animals, or lifting them up and going, they're just stronger than Egyptian women. Either way, Pharaoh doesn't know what what the whole encounter is like, and so he has to trust what the midwives say. So going on, it says this, verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. Stop. Whatever they were saying, if you want to believe it was a half lie, that's fine. I can totally see that. God was okay with this. Like, God was okay with doing whatever, like, whatever you're doing, midwife, saying these, saving these children, God's cool with it. And, and, and he even gives proof, not just saying that he dealt well with them, but listen how he deals well with them. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Let me read something to you from Victor P. Hamilton I thought is really cool. Surely some irony in the fact that because the midwives befuddled this Pharaoh, God gives each a household. Most Egyptologists believe that Pharaoh in Egyptian means great house. Those who pull the wool over the, ki- the eyes of the king great house end up with their own houses. So here's these midwives and here's Pharaoh. And he argues that Pharaoh means king great house because they fear the Lord gives them a great house, which is, I think, pretty cool. Uh, verse 22 then says this, then Pharaoh commanded All of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, he shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And that's the way that it ends. And I'm going to come back to this verse 22, but I want to zoom out to explain it a little bit. So there's the first chapter of Exodus. If you haven't read your Bible today, there's one chapter. You got one chapter in, okay? And as we have this chapter and we kind of zoom out, I think a big question we can ask is, what do we do with this? This is a cool narrative, but why does God give us Exodus 1? And here's where I think we should be pushing towards. Um, Exodus 1 is picking up on the heels, if you're a member of Genesis, which is a story of God establishing his people. All the way back to Jacob's great grand or Jacob's grandfather, you find this idea, who Joseph's from, this idea that God wants to establish a kingdom through a certain people. And Exodus is starting to implement that kingdom in a nation that is not known by God, or at least not found. God's name is not there. And so as this nation grows, what we immediately see is there is a power pushing against God's plan. Do you see that? As we read this chapter one, there's this back and forth between God and Pharaoh. God and Pharaoh. Let me show it to you. So let me give you some encounters. So here's the first act. Let's go through the narrative again so we're on the same page. I can read it off my notes if we don't have it. Here we go. So here's the first one. God establishes his people and the people are growing. So here's the first interaction, what we pick up at the beginning of the chapter. The people of Israel are growing. They're growing. They're growing. So Pharaoh responds, right? Here's Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh tries to stop them through forced labor. Well, let's just punish them. Let's just make work hard. So he tries to stop this growth, what God is doing in his people. So now he tries to force it through forced labor. God responds with, well, no, he makes all the women very fertile. The people multiply all the more. 
So you're not going to be able to stop us through forced labor. So then God says, okay, we're just going to multiply. We're going to go even crazier. And as they multiply, Pharaoh responds. Pharaoh responds with this. So Pharaoh tries to kill the male boys and wash out all of the people. So now, fine, you're growing. Then I'll just kill all your male children. That's Pharaoh's response to what God is doing. So God has a response of his own. He has these people called midwives. So this is what happened. God uses the midwives to save those male babies that the Pharaoh is trying to kill because there's too many people because the people of God are growing. So, of course, Pharaoh has a response to the midwives. Pharaoh uses his, uh, uses his people to kill them. So now it's not the Israelite midwives. Look again at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. So it's not just the midwives. Now, listen, all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrew, you shall cast into the Nile. As we zoom out in Exodus 1, what's setting the trajectory and what we're going to see through the whole course of the book of Exodus is this battle between what God is doing in establishing his kingdom and these forces that are pushing up against it, which should cause us to meditate at least for a moment. It it should cause us to stop for a second and and, and understand um, almost exactly a year ago what we talked about in Ephesians 6. If you were here, we went through the book of Ephesians last year, and we got to Ephesians 6, and we were reminded that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. What I tried to put in front of us is, is there is a reality that there is a devil who has schemes. That word schemes is methodos. It's where we get a word methods from. There is a very real being. Do you understand? A very real being. He's not like the dark side of the force. He's not a figment of your imagination. He is very real. He has a personality. He likes things. He doesn't like things. He is very active and he has schemes. So while you're playing checkers, he's playing chess. He knows what he's doing and he is against the plan of God. He is pushing it up. And what Ephesians 6 is telling us is what we find in Exodus 1. That on a macro level, we see this uh, back and forth between the powers of good and evil, no matter how we want to paint them and get lost in Hollywood, the reality is put in front of us, there's a spiritual war going on. But here's what we've got to like, really begin to put our mind to. This spiritual war, these demonic forces, is not up there somewhere. We get so lost in this like, deistic idea sometimes that this spiritual war is going on. Ask the Egyptian women or are the Israelite women, ask these Israelite women how spiritual this abortion is. They're not going, well, I mean, my baby's not really dying. It's like just, a, no, they're feeling the effects of this. It's very tangible. And so hear me when I say this. When, when Jesus in Luke 10 says, I saw Satan coming down like lightning, uh, and, and he's quoting in that moment Isaiah 14, I believe. When he's quoting Isaiah 14, you go back to reading context in Isaiah 14. Um, Isaiah is talking about a king. And, and this king is being struck down. And so the question is, hey, Jesus, is it Satan or is it this king? And the answer is both. Like, they, there's real powers. And they're using real... And in this moment, Pharaoh is being used as a pawn by a demonic force. And so listen to me. I'm pleading with you right now. There are alternate false forces, false ideas, ideologies, false ways against God's plan when it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenting when it comes to neighboring, when it comes to management, when it comes to sexuality. These things and many, many more are pushing against the way of God. And on a macro level, if you hear nothing else, hear this. As believers, we are to push against the pharaohs of this world. Yes and amen. But we're also supposed to push against the pharaohs within us. That Pharaoh desires to take over in us. 
As we read Exodus 1, this back and forth of this battle, it's important that we acknowledge that God has a plan, God is moving forward, God has a kingdom, and God has a way, and he's asking us as his people to live live into it. And because of that, there are forces against us. It's very real. And so there's a couple things that I think through Exodus 1 we can pull to understand that battle. We can understand that narrative, uh, a few different things. So I just want to share a few of them uh, amidst this battle as you continue to um, fight this thing that is not flesh and, and blood, but, but um, are principalities and things of the air and demonic forces. So let me share a couple things that I think could be helpful throughout the course of this in these false structures. Number one is, as we read Exodus 1, I want to remind you, as we fight against the pharaohs of this world and the pharaohs within ourselves, we do not get our power from the nations we are in. Okay? As believers, we are not to rely on a nation's power. Now, I say that because Christians have had a pretty good run in America, and it's probably going to go for a while. Right now, you can still use Christianity as a platform to get votes. But I'm telling you, if we're relying on that as believers, we will be let down. Because at some point, a president will come along and forget who Joseph is. Do you understand? And so for us to rely on a nation's power is not the way of Christianity. So when we, like, we can make a declaration, I'm Christian, and honestly even find favor with people, there will be a day when that's not the case. And there are a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world who can't do that. We don't draw our power from, from uh, na- national, like the nation's power, nationalism, uh, political leaders. That's not where we draw our power from the fear of the Lord. We are the midwives. Do you understand? We're the midwives. Which leads to another thing that, uh, as part of that, the second thing is, um, as the people of God amidst going through this struggle, we don't react to the fear of man. So trying to get rid of the Pharaoh within us or trying to fight the Pharaohs in our culture, we're not, we're not concerned with the fear of Pharaoh. We're not concerned with the fear of man. We care about what God thinks. And so you can interpret this however you want. We need to be afraid of God's thoughts on things, not man's thoughts on things. That's what we need to think of. The third thing that I think is important is um, throughout this narrative, as you go through this struggle, I want to remind you that um, persecution only makes the people of God thrive. Let me read something to you from, uh, again, Victor Hamilton. He says this, Pharaoh's harsh measures directed at the Israelites have the opposite effects from what, we were, uh, what he was hoping. They continue to thrive and multiply. Listen to this next part. Acts provides examples from the New Testament era where the believers, although harassed and persecuted, continue to multiply. Illustrations of this phenomenon can be found in almost any century. As believers, hear me, our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia right now, they're not, their perspective is not, well, when I become to Christ, I have a life of comfort. They're expecting everything to fall apart expecting, especially when they have to leave their old religion and then be persecuted because of that. Hear me though, amidst the suffering, the people of God rejoice. This is why Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that we grow, we, we go beyond when we're pressed down. And this is important because it leads to my last point. Um, not everyone in this room is called to go to China or Nigeria or Northern India or Kolkata. That may be true, that you may not be called to go overseas and you'd be very much called to be here. That's where you are. Yes and amen to that. But can I say this? That doesn't mean you're not a missionary. And as a missionary, when you suffer, when you experience suffering around non-believers, respond like a missionary. 
Because the people of God multiply. They thrive under suffering. This is why James 1 and Romans 5 are telling us to rejoice and find hope in suffering. I love Spurge. You know Spurge has to get at somewhere in here. This is what he says about this. What is all this uh, to the unconverted? So we ask, what is suffering and persecution? What is it to the unconverted when they see us? Listen to this. Ah, while the men of God flourish in adversity, the men of this world are ruined by their prosperity. When you make a declaration that all you have in this world and it's all about you, it's all about gaining, 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 and you see someone who finds joy and happiness when they don't have the gainings of this world and they lose it all, all that gainings begins to crumble. To own recognize, well, it's obviously not found in this, it must be found somewhere else. We as missionaries reflect the Lord as we multiply, as we thrive under pain. It's a great story in Exodus 1 for us to see that, which reminds us where I'll close and finish. Uh, finish. Um, if Hebrews 10, and most of Hebrews is right in speaking about this narrative, we are going to see Jesus over and over and over again. And through the course of Exodus 1, what we see is this three to 400 year period where God has said nothing. The book of Genesis ends, God doesn't say anything, and the people of God end up going to slavery, and eventually they cry out, God hears them. Well, there's another period that's going to take place in the future that this happens again, and it's between your Old Testament and your New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. From the book of Malachi, God says nothing for 400 years, and then Jesus comes on the scene. Now, this is important for you to hear because amidst um, the abortion, amidst the persecution, amidst the suffering, God has a plan. Amidst the confusion, God has a plan. Amidst the pain, amidst the misunderstanding, God has a plan. With the back and forth, God, you did this, but then Satan did this, you did this, but then Satan did this. God has a plan. If you don't believe me, look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, in response to all of the Egyptians now trying to kill the Israelites, listen, now a man from the house of Levi, which is a house of priests, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Amidst the back and forth, we're only in chapter one. God has a plan. It ain't over. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Exodus chapter one. Honestly, just even those, reading those couple verses gets me kind of jacked at the uh, beginning of uh, Exodus chapter 2. Uh, the fact that you're going to do something. We feel like at the end of chapter 1, it's bleak. Now all the Israelites, or all the Egyptians are now looking to kill these Israelite boys. It feels like there is no hope, but you respond. You have a child who will be born, who is hidden. I mean, just we hear the echoes of Jesus in there. And because we now know, in hindsight, Jesus, what you've done, we lean heavy into this story. We recognize, Jesus, that you are the Savior, that when moments feel bleak and there feels like a back and forth and there is no hope, that, God, your plan will be established because, Jesus, you gained all the victory in the resurrection. And so as believers, not even death, not even death can stop us because in your name, Jesus, we go from life to better life, and we are grateful for that. I pray that would resonate with our souls, that as we continue to fight this battle, we're fighting alongside what you've already done in us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.